Hi, Dr. Jack. It's great to be here. Um, so delighted to speak with you. Your new book has been creating waves all around the world. Um, could you get us started by telling us who you are? I'll tell you a bit about uh, what we do on Network Capital. In, in a single sentence, we care about why people do what they do. And I reached out to you because your book is just fascinating in the way it, uh, it looks at uh, uh, both uh, work as well as uh, life beyond work and how they come together. Right. I think our, our objectives are very aligned. So I'm a professor at INSEAD Business School and my research really focuses on careers and um, leadership trajectories and tries to understand why people do what they do and, and how we can make it better and an easier journey for people and more meaningful along the way as well. So, um, you know, your, your, your early career was very different and then you got an MBA. How, like walk us through like as you as a college student, what were you most interested in? And when you look at your career today, how different or how similar is it uh, to what you thought it would be? So I don't think I could ever imagine ending up where I am today when I was, I don't know, 20, 21 at college. So I started off um, on a scientific path. So I studied genetic, genetics at university. And it was a subject that I was interested in. But honestly, I didn't really know what to do, like many people when they go to college, or maybe not these days, but in my day, no one knew what they wanted to do. And um, and I still didn't really know what to do on graduating. And it's interesting because both of my parents are academics. And I always said, I will never become an academic like my parents. And so I went into the business world and worked for six, seven years and then went back to get my MBA. And it's at that point that I really realized, OK, maybe academia is for me after all. I had to eat my words with my parents and uh, come back to the family business, as it were. And then I, at that point, I started my Ph.D., um, was there a particular moment that you um, that you that you thought that after doing a science, starting in a scientific career, then doing an MBA from IMD, right? Um, yeah. What prompted this move to academia? I I think it's a number of things. I think honestly, I've always been an, an academic at heart. I've always been quite geeky. You know, I've enjoyed reading, studying about things, doing research. That's always been my passion. Um, and I enjoyed business, but I found, and I found it was difficult in some ways, but it wasn't really challenging my thinking. And that's what I was missing in the business world. And that was really the decision to go back into academia, but still linked to the business world, business academics. So really to marry those two things that I enjoyed and was interested in pursuing. Um, how did you uh, decide what to major in? How did you pick your specialization or area of interest within your PhD? Yeah, within my PhD, so I've always from the beginning knew that I wanted to research careers and people's leadership identities and transitions. So it was really a passion from the beginning. And I was very lucky to get an advisor, Hermine Ibarra, who was also interested in that. And so our interests aligned. And um, I never really faced a point where I was struggling to decide what to do. I always knew. Fascinating. Um, so you're a qualitative researcher, right? Yeah. That's the tool you've used to write about your book. So, um, you know, many people have reached out to me asking uh, asking me to talk to you about uh, how did this book happen and what was your research methodology? And uh, uh, just walk us through the thought process, the journey of uh, writing this wonderful book. 
Yeah, so let me start with the, the research, because of course it started with a, um, a six-year research project. And, you know, as you well know, there are lots of different research methodologies available, and all of them are useful for different kind of things. Qualitative research um, and eth ethnographic research, ethnographies are very useful for an area where there's not a lot of things already been studied. So there aren't hypotheses out there to test. We're going out to try and build those hypotheses, really understand what's happening in that area and understand people's subjective experience. So I wasn't so much interested in causal relationships. So if you do X, then Y happens. I was more interested in understanding why do people make the choices they make and what are the consequences of those choices? And this is where qualitative methodology is just a very powerful methodology for understanding that, understanding individuals' sense-making. So over the course of the, of the six years, I followed more than 100 couples, and they were couples of all kind of types. So I was keen to do what we call um, not a random sample, as you would do in quantitative research, but what's called a theoretical sample. So to try and sample to maximize diversity. So I spoke to couples, you know, in their early years, 20s, 30s, right through to couples in their 50s, 60s, 70s. I spoke to couples from across the world in lots of different industries, lots of different career positions to try and get that diversity in my sample. And uh, uh, once you identify, once you had this diversity built in of all kinds, uh, you followed them over a period of six years. Uh, what were uh, you've talked about? Then you go on in your book to talk about three inflection points. Uh, could you share, shed some light on it? Yeah. So what I went into the research trying to understand was, you know, what are the real challenges people in working couples face? And what I found was it wasn't challenging all the time, but neither was it a smooth ride all the time. The challenges tended to come at three very specific points, what I call in the book the three transitions. And the book is really organized around these three transitions. And the first transition, very briefly, comes when we first get together as a couple and we have to make our first major decision, which is a hard choice. So this might be that we get together and one of us is offered a job, say, on the other side of the country. What do we do? Does one person follow the other? Do we try to, you know, live separate lives and still have a relationship? Do we split up? This is one decision. It might be when a, when a child is born, you know, how do we combine our careers and this baby? For couples who get together later in life, it might be a decision around how do we blend previous families? But what happens in this first transition is couples need to figure out, OK, how practically can we make all this work together? How can we have two careers that are meaningful to us and keep a relationship going? And the problem at this transition is when we when we approach this point, which all couples do in the first four or five years, we tend to look at it practically. We tend to think of you know, economics, who earns the most and maybe based on decisions on that. Or we think about logistics, childcare, all of these things. Now, these things are really important. However, they're not the real decisions that are happening at this stage. What's often happening at this stage is really a question of power, right? Who gets to make the decisions? Who leads and who follows? And in couples that really work, how do we both explain and explore what we really want out of our careers of life? 
and try and structure our lives in the way that we can both get most of what we want. And it's couples who focus on that, that more fundamental things that tend to do very well. And couples who just focus on the practical level who tend to struggle. That's fascinating. And you also talk about uh, the lack of role models, that there aren't too many examples uh, uh, present earlier. Um, and that's true for all cultures, right? It really is. So what we see in every single country in the world, the number of working couples is rising year on year. Obviously, countries started from different positions, but this is a trend that's global. Every single country in the, in the world has experienced this trend. And for every single country in the world, it's a new trend. So if we think of um, the generation of people who are now in their 40s and 50s, that's the first generation who, en masse, people are in working couples. And so for many countries in the world, more than 50% of that, that age bracket are members of working couples. But if you go one generation above, of course, that number's a lot lower. And again, if we go one generation below, that number's a lot higher. So we see the trend, but for most of us, we don't have those role models in our parents or the older generation in our organizations who maybe have working couples. They're more of a rarity. So we're the first generation that's really struggling through these issues on math. And uh, what are some traits that you've seen um... First of all, let me ask you this: Like you teach, uh, you, te you teach as INSEAD, and you've uh, you've had exposures getting an MBA yourself. Um, how do people respond when you say that it shouldn't be at least in the initial years? And being analytical and being like very logical and uh, may not be the only way to start. Are people receptive to this? I think so because people have experienced it in their skin. I mean, the number of people who come to me and say, you know, we've synced our calendars, we have these spreadsheets to divide the tasks and it's still not working. Everyone has experience of this and I think most people know intuitively, of course it's important we also do those things, but it's not enough. So it's not about forgetting the logistics, it's about saying that's important but it's not the silver bullet, that's really not what's going to help you over the long term. And I think many people have experienced this and know it intuitively that that alone is not working for them. Yeah, just managing the logistics will surely um, not make your relationship work. Uh, but the vice versa is also, uh, you know, a challenging proposition that uh, if you ignore the logistics altogether, um, of course. Then, then things might and, fall apart. And I don't think anyone would suggest that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'd love to explore more uh, about the 100 couples that you picked. Were there some in long distance relationship or multicultural relationships such as yours? Absolutely. There were all sorts. And I tried to maximize that variety. And of course, because I studied couples over the long term and because many of these couples had been together for a long time before I spoke to them, there were couples who'd made transitions. So maybe they were long distance and then they came back together. Um, and there were plenty of multicultural couples in the sample, too. You know, um, if you look at this entire genre of uh, work and, you know, making personal life and professional life work, I think there, are, there have been a few examples of uh, people who've studied like supermen and women coming together and conquering the world metaphorically. Yeah. Um, but there aren't some relatable examples. So was that a design like principle when you started? Yeah, writing this book? because I, I think these 
these stories of these power couples are very unhelpful for, for us mere mortals <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One is they tend to be very wealthy. And so they can buy their way out of certain issues that the rest of us can't. And the second is when, you know, the magazines, whether it's Time magazine or whatever, profiles one of these couples, they tend to do so in a slightly dishonest way in that, you know, everything's wonderful. And isn't this couple great? Well, you know, I've spoken to some of those power couples and they struggle with exactly the same issues as the rest of us. But when we put them on a pedestal, the magazines very rarely write about that. And so I really wanted to um, write a book about real people like you and me who struggle with the issues we all struggle with, whether it's sick kids, whether it's who, whose career takes priority, whether it's juggling, you know, our wider family versus our versus our family. These are struggles that we all face, whether, you know, we live in France, we live in India, we're cross-cultural relationships, we're long-distance relationships. We're all struggling with these things across the world. Uh, Dr. Jennifer, have you looked at uh, uh, the impact of wealth on the kinds of couples? Is that income a factor? Do people make decisions largely based on uh, financial viability? Should they? Shouldn't they? Uh, is that a criteria at all? So you would be surprised how little wealth makes a difference unless we're at the real margin. So often, so obviously, if people are extremely wealthy, they have a set of choices that the rest of us don't have. And if people are really struggling with money, you know, that can cause extra stress. But the vast majority of people in the middle, wealth actually doesn't seem to make a lot of difference to the challenges we make, we face. And it's because these challenges are primarily psychological. They're questions of, um, you know, how do I get my ambitions supported? How do we support each other? How do we really explain to each other what our goals are in life? And these more psychological things really have very little to do with money. Uh, uh, but still, people tend to take some decisions by based on, say, who earns a few thousand pounds more, a few thousand dollars more. Um, they, they do. And that can be a very tricky decision criteria for a couple of reasons. One is, as you well know, the world of careers is a lot more unstable than it was in the past. And so just because my partner earns more than me today, it doesn't mean that in two, three, five years time, that will still be the case. So when couples make these decisions based on what I earn today, it can sometimes be a very false decision criteria. Likewise, we're not all motivated only by money. Of course, money is important, but we're also motivated by other things, you know, growth in our careers, having mean, a meaningful job, having time to pursue other hobbies. And if we place all our emphasis on money and deny these other things that are really important to us, I often found couples made decisions that in the long run they were unhappy with. So let me give you an example. There was one couple who, um, a Canadian couple, and they lived in Toronto, and um, she got offered a really great job in Vancouver, so on the West Coast, a very long way from Toronto. And they used a money decision. They said, okay, if he can get a job with a similar salary or more than he was earning in Toronto, they'd move. It made economic sense. And it did rationally. 
But what they found was they moved and they were actually quite unhappy because there were other things important. They may have earned more money, but there were other things important to them, being close to family, embedded in their network of friends. There were certain pursuits they did in Toronto, which weren't available to them in Vancouver. So on the one hand, that decision looked economically rational. But once they made it, it was a decision they regretted. Obviously, we can't go back in time. But how should they? Are there some things they should have factored in? Could they have made this decision better? Or was there a way of knowing some of this? Apart from uh, yeah. say if the book were, didn't exist. <laughs> so I think you're right. It's impossible to go back in time and it's easy to regret things. But I think, yes, there is a way we can at least increase our chance of making a good decision. And that is when we're faced with these decisions, couples should really be sitting down and looking holistically at what really matters to us individually and also as a couple. So they may be individual career goals. It might be some couple goals around financial stability or the location we live. It might be the kind of couple we want to be, right? Do we want to be an adventurous couple and, and do all this stuff? And it's really important to map out those, if you like, decision criteria before making the decision. Because if we just rush into making the decision, we tend to make the decision based on one or two decision criteria and ignoring the rest. And so if couples really sit down and have a good hard look around what matters to them both and what matters to them together, they're much more likely then to base their decisions on this holistic life plan rather than um, real pocketed things like money, like location. Understood. Um, you teach in, you know, one of the best, arguably the most international business school. Um, have you seen a, any change, if at all, in the way people have started, um, you know, approaching the question of, say, marriage or dating um, with, with technology becoming mainstream, people's career becoming more volatile? Um, yeah. It's, it's a great question. And I think yes and no. I think at the end of the day, people fall in love you know, and, yeah. and, 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 and things happen. But I think in general, people, especially the younger generation, are becoming a bit more mindful about thinking through what they really want. Now, of course, it's impossible to plan for all eventualities. We never know what life's going to throw at us. But I think the younger generation are a bit more mindful around thinking, you know, are we really compatible in terms of what we want long term? You know, we may be deeply in love today, but in 10 years time, are our paths going in very different directions? And I think this is this is really helpful. And I think part of this comes from the trend that, of course, we we tend to be marrying later. And of course, as we get, and we know that we know that people who get married later actually have a lower lower risk of divorce. And I was like, you know, why is this? And it's because, of course, when we have a bit more life experience, we're a bit clearer about what we want in the future, and we can be a bit mindful about our choices. So I think, um, so I think, in some ways, the younger generation are doing a better job than than perhaps previous generations. You know, and at the same time, the whole, you know, Internet dating and all this can make the whole affair rather stressful. Right. Um, yes, people are definitely marrying later, thinking, having you know, some experience before they actually settle down. Um, yeah. Also, women are earning more and joining the workforce uh, much more than before. What sort of an impact are we seeing on the dating or marriage world? 
Yeah. So and it's really interesting because what's happening is both men and women are shifting. So what we see across the world is an equalization of ambition. So men and women are much more equal in their professional ambition, but also very interestingly in their desire to build a family and spend time with children. And so we see this equalization in the in the two domains. And I think it's really important to recognize that men's desires are changing as well, not just women's. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot more younger couples are going in with the sense of having an equal partnership. Now, when I think of an equal partnership, I don't mean that everyone does exactly the same thing. I mean, obviously, you know, women te- are the ones who give birth. So there's maternity leave. You know, we have different career trajectories. But I think the principles of the relationships that most young people are going in with tend to be more a principle in terms of we know work is important to both of us and building a family is important to both of us. Now, we may not both do that in exactly the same way, but those underlying principles are much more equal than they used to be. Right. Um, On this principle, is it like are people dividing it by time or like so for these X years, my career takes precedence? And next, is it yours or is there another design principle at work? Yeah, so there's really three main design principles. And it's important to know any of them can work. So the classic design principle is one person's career takes just a little bit more priority or a little bit more importance than the others. And the other person takes more of a slack up at home. Now, both people still have important careers, but let's say a geographical move or work travel, things like this would tend to be led or prioritized with the person with the more important career. And of course, traditionally, that's been the man in that role, although these days that can shift. The second model is the one you just talked about, this turn taking, you know, I'll push forward for three or four years and then you'll push forward. And of course, the advantage of this is we both get a chance of investing in our careers and also investing at home, which which more and more people want to do. And the third model is that people have real equally important careers, but they put some boundaries. So, for example, we're, we're not going to leave Delhi, but within Delhi, we can both, you know, have quite important careers. And what I found when I first looked at my results was that third, that third model where we have equal importance looked like it was a little bit more successful in that people tended to report feeling happier in their careers and their relationships. But when I looked into it, I actually saw that any of these models can be successful. The reason the third one looked a little bit more successful was there were choices to be made. And so it forced couples to have these conversations around what really matters to us and how we're going to work towards them. So I think it's important that people understand any model can be very successful as long as you've really explicitly negotiated it and agreed it up front. Um, it was very helpful. I was wondering if there is a, a model that's just the opposite, like some examples or some um, some things that are bound to fail that you've seen yeah, that definitely doesn't work. <laughs> Great question. And I think the things which the, there's one thing that is always a disaster, but it's not a model. It can occur in any model. And the thing which really derails couples is when there's an imbalance of power in the couple. Now, what I mean by that, what I mean by power in a couple is who gets a shot at going for their dreams, going for their goals, pursuing their ambitions. Now, what tends to happen when couples first get together is the power balance is fairly equal. You know, we both understand what we want. We're supporting each other. 
But very often over time, power becomes imbalanced in a couple. And the couple becomes set up such that one person is supported in their ambitions and the other person takes the, the supporting role. And this is when the resentment, the anger, the envy can come into couples. And this really spells a disaster for couples when this power imbalance starts to tip. Um, uh, this is I, I'm not sure if there's research on this or not. Is it like the most more successful? Suppose people finish business school at the same time and say they're from different countries and uh, say uh, uh, person X becomes more successful or less successful. Does that have a strong bearing on on power or? It's no. really interesting. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Power is really the underlying psychological dynamic. So what I found in my research is that couples could manage quite big differences in success, objective success, as long as both people felt they were going after their career dreams. So let me give you an example. One couple I worked with, um, she was a CEO, actually. So from the outside, she looked obviously very, very successful. And that was her career goal. You know, she wanted to climb the ladder. She wanted to be in big corporates. That was really what she wanted. He was in entrepreneurship. And so um, a lot more rockier ride, right? He hadn't earned as much as her. He'd had some failures. He'd had some successes. So when you look at the couple, she looks more successful. But he felt very successful. This was really what he wanted to do. It was his passion. He understood that entrepreneurship is an up and down road. So the power was very equal in their couple, even though from the outside, she looked more successful than him. And I think it's if, if couples can manage this underlying power dynamic, if they're both doing what they want to do, it doesn't matter if one out earns the other or has a more prestigious job or is in a more prestigious organization. That becomes an issue if the other person feels they've not been able to pursue what they want. But it's a great question. Um, yeah, this is a fascinating answer, useful for so many of uh, people who finish graduate in business schools. Uh, tell us, yeah. Dr. Jennifer, uh, if there is an impact of, say, the social network or, uh, or the kind of friends people surround themselves uh, with on, on, say, making a relationship work despite, say, power struggles, can one, can say, a social network uh, uh, mitigate this to some extent or it's not been studied? <laughs> Yeah, to some extent, yes. I mean, first of all, we know that marriage um, is a very social institution. And we know that people who are embedded in a social network that's supportive, that especially that understands the, the struggles they're in. And this is why this generational issue is very interesting, because we're the first generation doing this en masse. But we know that these things are really important because we can look to our peers the other couples in our social network and and talk to them, talk the issues through with them and understand where they are. So this is really, really important, this support network for couples and, and a support network of other working couples, people who get it, if you see what I'm saying. And it can, it can certainly help, but it, it still requires the couple themselves to do some work in their couple to make sure this doesn't happen. Got it. Uh just switching gears a little bit, uh, I was wondering if uh, if you'd study anxiety and dating slash marriage, like couples, modern couples working in different roles, trying to make it work. Um, what happens when one of them or both of them are super anxious about their careers? Do their personal lives fall apart? And uh, for those in which it doesn't, is there something they do differently? 
Yeah, it's a great question given where we are in society at the moment. So first of all, it's really important to understand that stress tends to what we call spill over. So if we're a couple and you're stressed, it's likely to impact my stress levels. And so we know that couples can get themselves into a little bit of a vicious stress cycle where one gets stressed, the other gets stressed, and then the stress compounds. So there's certainly impacts across. At the same time, when we're both working, if we understand the the kind of things our partner's going through, we can be much more likely to be able to support them in their stress. And so there's a little bit of a double-edged sword here. So on the one hand, it makes us much more supportive partners. And at the same time, there's a danger of spillover. And we also know that that stress is different across different career points. So in those early days when we're trying to establish ourselves, it can be very stressful. You know, we're really trying to get a foot on the career ladder, prove ourselves, prove our worth, trying to get those early promotions. It can be a time that's very stressful. Luckily for many couples, they don't yet have children or a family at that stage, which can help a little bit because they're mainly focusing on the career in each other. And then, of course, in later life, there can be the stress of juggling the children and careers and at different points. But it's a very double-edged sword with the stress piece. Yeah. Um, so children really, like children are a, are a really important uh, component of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of, of this. I think, do you have any uh, suggestions or when you look at your own life, uh, if you're, of course, comfortable talking about it, yeah. what were some lessons that your research has unveiled that would probably make you, uh, you know, not you can't go back into the past and change it, but uh, what would you have done differently had you studied yeah. the research when you were at the uh, that stage yeah so one of my biggest learnings on the children question is you know all cultures do it differently and all cultures produce very healthy well-rounded children so what this says to me is there's lots of different ways of doing things and the kids tend to be okay as long as they have love and support and so I think couples can put themselves under enormous pressure feeling there's a best way to raise the children And of course, as parents, we all want to do the best by our children. But my research really showed me that there are many different ways that can work very well. So it's really about finding the one that works for you and not worrying too much about social expectations. So in some countries, there's a very strong role the grandparents play in bringing up children. In other countries, they don't play a role at all. You know, in some countries, there's a strong reliance on you know, nannies or childminders who have quite a one-on-one relationship. In other countries, it's these collective crashes that work. Everything can work as long as, as a parent, we feel happy with us. So it's really about picking a parent strategy that works for you and having faith that it will be okay. And I'm just trying to step back from that societal pressure. Understood. Um, Towards, uh, I mean, we're coming towards the close of, close of this podcast. I just wanted to ask if there were some un- unanswered questions that you're still exploring uh, now that your research has concluded or some things uh, that you're still working on um, on this subject. Yeah. So one of the things I'm, I'm starting to work on now is couples who actually work together. So the book is is about couples who work in general. Um, And I'm really fascinated by couples who work together, particularly those who maybe set up entrepreneurship, things like this, because I think it magnifies the dynamics. So I think that's a fascinating um, 
you know, area to study. Um, and then I think some of the things, you know, we've discussed in here, you know, how does the change in dating and marriage patterns really impact who we choose and how we build that initial phase of life are all fascinating things to study. Wonderful. Your podcast is going to go out to about 100,000 subscribers. Uh, do you have any final parting message to them about work or, or personal lives or intertwining both? Yeah, I do. So I think, you know, many of us wouldn't hesitate to invest a whole weekend or a whole week in thinking through our career direction and where we're going. And I would encourage your listeners to think about how to invest in their relationship as well, because what we see in the long term is who we are married to, who we're partnered with, makes a huge difference to how our career goes, whether we're successful in our career, whether we're happy in our career. So don't just think about investing in your career. Think about investing your in your relationship as a form of career investment. Wonderful. And last question, where can people find your wonderful book? And if they have any feedback, uh, where should they connect with you? Yeah. So the book is called Couples That Work. It's um, published by Penguin. They can find it at any of the good any of the good bookstores any of the online retailers and they can also look at my website which is www.jpetrolieri.com which will have all the news items other articles people can send me an email and give me feedback and I'd love to hear from them so um if you read the book get in touch super thank you very much for your time we sincerely appreciate it and I can't uh, thank you on behalf of the entire community this is the first time uh, somebody has analyzed couples like regular couples, not power couples or otherwise, and uh, offered practical advice. Thanks very much. We thoroughly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye.